We read from God's Word as we turn to the letter of James. James chapter 5, and we're reading from the first verse. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, the workmen who mowed your fields, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else, let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Suppose you're ill in bed. The doorbell rings, someone opens the door for you, and the minister and the elders are there. Maybe you want to see them, maybe you don't particularly feel like seeing them, but they come in and they gather round the sick bed and they pray. And then one, probably the minister, brings out a flask of oil and he goes to anoint you. What would your thoughts be? How would you react to the elders coming to anoint you when you were sick? Would you be puzzled? Would you be angry? Would you be, who knows what you might feel? It would seem very strange. And of course, in James chapter 5, we read about elders coming and anointing the sick. Of course, a vast range of beliefs and practices claim uh, to be based on the Bible. And often, of course, the claims that are made are diametrically opposed to what the Bible actually says. And they can't all be biblical. Roman Catholicism, of course, claims to find uh, warrant for its sacrament uh, of anointing the sick 
uh, in James 5. It used to be called, of course, uh, extreme unction or the last rites uh, that used to be given at the point of death or just after death. That's been repackaged uh, theologically now to be the, uh, the anointing of the sick. The James 5 would be claimed as warrant for it. Protestants may disagree, but their views of what James 5 uh, teaches differ widely. What is this passage saying? And the temptation might be, of course, to throw up your hands in despair and say, nobody knows what the true interpretation is. And sometimes Christians are inclined to do that with any difficult portion of the Word of God. And we need, of course, to be attending carefully to what the Scriptures say and to understand uh, words like this in their biblical context. So we're moving on today in James 5. We're getting near the end of the letter. We're looking at verses 13 to 15. Lessons in prayer, part one. And God willing, uh, next Lord's Day, we'll have lessons in prayer, part two. So, lessons in prayer. Because we need to understand the focus of these verses, our inclination probably is immediately to think of anointing and what does that mean? What's the purpose of it? Should we still be doing it? But that isn't the main point, in fact, that James is dealing with. And always when we're studying God's Word, we need to be asking, first of all, what's the main point of this passage? Because we can go off on tangents and interesting little details. But they may not be the the main point that the Bible writer is getting across to us. And that is the case, certainly, in these verses of James chapter 5. First of all, we see here remembering God. Remembering God. And verse 13, there James is really showing us that in every kind of experience that the Christian passes through, Our response to it is to be centered on God. That's the the chief point that James is making. In every situation you face, in whatever you go through, God is to be your focus. James asks, first of all, is any of you in trouble? And the word he uses is a very wide-ranging term. It could be any kind of of trouble that a Christian faces. It could be physical, it could be illness, uh, disease of any kind, uh, it could be mental burdens, uh, it could be financial, spiritual. Any kind of trouble that a Christian faces is included here. Is any of you in trouble? And every Christian will answer uh, again and again, yes, this applies to me. The circumstances I'm in are difficult. And no situation is excluded. We never should say to ourselves, well, my situation isn't of any interest to my God. He's not in bother about that. And sometimes we can feel that. No situation is of no interest to God. Nothing is too small for God. If it troubles us and burdens us, it matters to the Lord. So whenever a child of God is distressed, whatever the cause of it, here's our proper response. He should 
pray. We can bring the troubles, whatever form they take, to the Lord in prayer. Think of how many of the psalms that we sing are prayers often offered in times of trouble and distress. Many of the psalms fit uh, into uh, this theme. Psalm 118, verse 5, In my anguish I cried to the Lord, and he answered by setting me free. I sang it a few minutes ago. Set us in a wide open place. In my anguish. We don't know what it was. Often we're not told uh, the the cause of the psalmist's anguish or trouble. And in a way, that means we can apply the psalms to any situation that that is troubling us. But you notice the, the reaction, the proper reaction of a Christian in time of trouble. There are two extremes that, that we may find ourselves falling into. One very obvious possibility, if we're in trouble, if we're in hard situations, difficult circumstances, the danger may be that we fall into anger or complaining at God, blaming anyone else, but ultimately blaming God for the hard time that we're going through. And it's easy to slip into doing that under the pressure of a time of trouble. That's one possibility. The other possibility, in a sense, is the opposite extreme. That's the Christian who responds to trouble with what we might call the stiff upper lip, almost refusing to admit the trouble, the problem, or the burden, or the trial. The Christian who, it seems, doesn't feel the pressure, doesn't experience the pain or the grief or whatever it is. Maybe they feel that if they admit to being burdened and to struggling, they're somehow letting God down. And if they're good Christians, they'll never feel these things. And that's not biblical. Pain for Christians is still pain. And we're not called to pretend otherwise. What is the proper response then? Well, it is that of a a child of God who can go with confidence to our Father in heaven, not angry at him and complaining, not denying the burdens we're carrying, but coming to the Father. In the spirit of 1 Peter 5 and verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And so if you are in trouble as a believer, your response is to pray and cast your anxiety on the Lord. How often do we cast our anxieties on the Lord and then when we've prayed, we pick them up and we carry them as if we'd never prayed. You do that. We all do it. Cast your burden on the Lord and leave it there. What's the point of praying if you keep on carrying it? Is anyone in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy then, James asks? A reminder that the Christian life is not one of endless 
struggle and misery. Sometimes perhaps we can present it that way because we must be honest about the trials and the struggles. But then the problem may be we think, well, that's all the Christian life is, and it's always hard, it's always a burden, it's always difficult. And yet there are many times of real joy for the Lord's people. Joy in in the good things of God's creation. It's the Christian who can enjoy God's creation in a way that non-Christians can't. It's our Father's world. We enjoy it. We delight in it. It does. It should give us joy. Joy in all the happy experiences of life that we share with others. And of course, especially joy in salvation and the blessings that Christ gives us. Those should rejoice our heart. And God gives us many reasons for joy. And again, turn to the Psalms. There are the Psalms where the psalmist cries out in anguish when he is burdened and troubled. There are the Psalms where he's filled with delight and joy in the Lord. Psalm 122 I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's rejoicing in the Psalms and they're good words to use when we are filled with joy. And a proper response, James tells us, when we do experience joy, let him sing Psalms. Literally, that's what James says. That's the word he uses, psalo, to sing psalms. If you experience joy, especially the joy of the Lord and salvation, express it in the singing of psalms. They are a great vehicle for expressing joy. And bear in mind, too, what James said at the very beginning of his letter, if you can remember that far back, chapter 1 and verse 2, that even in times of trial, the Christian can rejoice, not by pretending there aren't any trials, but by focusing on the Lord and on the Lord's provision. And so James is reminding us that in whatever circumstances you find yourself, remember God. Focus on the Lord. Perhaps it's in the times of joy that we most readily forget the Lord. Uh, Perhaps in the trials we're reminded we need help and then we do turn to the Lord. Maybe in the easy times or the joyful times, then God isn't in our thoughts. And that's sad and that's not right. Uh, We're not to seek the Lord only when we have troubles and problems. God is not just there for emergencies, like a life belt along the shore that you hope you don't ever need, but it's great to know it's there if you do need it. And to some people, God appears to be like that. It's great to know he's there, and if you need him, you'll call on him, but most of the time, you don't need to think about him. But for a Christian, that is utterly wrong. He should be in our thoughts in the joyful times as much as in the hard and difficult times. One commentator uh, on this verse has written this, God is not just an errand boy to help human need, 
but one, we're told, who deserves worship and praise at all times. God isn't just an errand boy. Just to call him when you want him and forget about him the rest of the time. In the times of trouble and the times of joy, remember God. Remember God. Somebody we have to work at that. Just very consciously think of him. But we ought to be doing it. Remember God. Secondly, we see the theme of calling the elders. First remembering God, then calling the elders. And now James focuses on a particular uh, situation in verse 14. He thought of trouble, he thought of joy. In particular, he says, is any one of you sick? And of course, such times are going to come to all believers. You may have great health, but sooner or later you'll be sick in one way or another. And then there's the response that James uh, enjoins on us. He should call the elders of the church. Now, James is not counseling avoidance of medical help. He is not saying, call the elders of the church instead of a doctor. There are some Christians, sadly, uh, who would neglect medical help. Say, well, God will heal me and I'll just pray. And some even, when supposedly they've been healed miraculously, will stop taking medication. Dangerous, even fatal sometimes. That's not what James is exhorting us to do. Medical healing ultimately comes from God as much as any other kind of healing. But you've got to think of the situation in which these Christians found themselves. Most of them were poor. Most of them would not for one moment be able to afford medical help. Some of them would go through their lives, which would be quite short, without ever having contact uh, with a doctor. Doctors were for the wealthy, not for the poor. And so there, uh, practically, there's a need for help for Christians, those who are not able to get medical help. It's also bearing in mind what we've just been saying about remembering God. It's recognizing the spiritual foundations of life, that God's people are involved in our trials, in our sicknesses, in whatever our need. We're not isolated individuals. We're not flying solo. We're part of a community of God's people. And one of the functions of the elders of the church is to visit God's people and come alongside them in their times of need and their times of sickness and loss and whatever it may be. That's one of the fundamental callings of an elder, to care for those in need. And so here, here's a recognition that God's people are involved in our troubles, in our joys, in our times of sickness. What are the elders to do? Okay, you've called the elders, they come. What are they actually to do? What is James exhorting elders to do in those situations? Well, 
the first thing, the main thing, this is the main verb, to look at the grammar of the verses, pray over them. Suggests perhaps we're looking at something fairly serious. I imagine James is not suggesting if you've got a bite of, a bite of man flu, you want all the elders to come. You probably don't want them, and let's be honest, they don't want your man flu. But we're talking about something that is serious, something that should be a matter for prayer. And so the elders are to come, and what they are to do chiefly is pray over the person. That's one of the ministries of elders is to pray, to pray for the flock. Yes, we all are to pray for each other, no doubt about that. But elders especially are to be praying for the Lord's people, to know the needs and to pray for them. James is not describing here some kind of charismatic gift of healing uh, that the elders have. I believe it's simply uh, the regular prayer ministry of elders for God's people, particularly for the sick. Uh, There's nothing miraculous or out of the ordinary uh, about the praying. But again, you see what they're doing. They're recognizing God's involved in this situation. Somebody's sick. God is involved. He's not distant and uncaring. He's involved. And through the elders he's given, God shows his involvement. And prayer is an appropriate response whenever there's a need like this. That's fairly straightforward. The elders come, they pray. Part of the ministry of elders, part of pastoral ministry. But then what about the next bit? Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. We finally got to the anointing. So what do we do with it? Is James saying literally, even today we should be coming along with oil and pouring it on people when we pray for them? You'll have noticed I haven't practiced that, should I? Should I have come and anointed some of you when you were ill? Is that what James is telling us? Certainly there's no indication here of any kind of of sacramental significance uh, that the pouring of the oil will somehow bring healing. It's not suggesting some sacrament of anointing the sick. There's no indication of that at all. What was oil used for in that culture in those days? Well, one of the things was uh, it was soothing. It could be a healing agent. Remember the Samaritan who came across the man who'd been mugged on the Jericho Road, Luke 10. And Jesus' parable, we are told, when the Samaritan came to the injured man, one of the things he did was to pour on oil and wine. Wine, presumably antiseptic. The oil that would be soothing and help the healing process. And surely James is saying, first of all, that the elders should do what they can to provide practical relief for a believer who's ill, particularly as most of them would be in the situation of not having medical help. Do what you can to help him practically, James is saying. Relieve 
whatever suffering you are able to relieve. It may be that there's also something symbolic in what the elders are to do. Often in Scripture, pouring out of oil or of water is symbolic of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. It's like a picture of the pouring out of the Spirit. And so it's certainly possible that the anointing here is a symbol of the anointing of the Holy Spirit bringing help, perhaps bringing healing to the suffering Christian. It's interesting that we're told in Mark 6 when Jesus' disciples went out, they preached and they healed and they anointed the sick. We don't have any references to Jesus ever doing that, but the disciples did. And there seems to be the symbolism of the pouring out of the Spirit to bring help to some believer who is suffering and in hardship. And so we have an exhortation to give practical help and an exhortation to do something that reminds the sick person that God helps God gives blessing, God gives strength, God may give healing, if that is his will. And that, I believe, is how we should handle these words about the elders anointing the sick person. Practically, do what you can to help them, and remind them of God's help and of what the Holy Spirit is able to give them in blessing and strength and possibly healing. Nothing deeper, more sacramental or mystical than that. And the one thing is clear in the verse, that the oil, the anointing, is not the source of healing. However you you interpret the words, it's not what heals. Verse 15, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. It's the praying for God's help that matters. Uh, The faith, praying, uh, the prayer offered in faith seems to be the the faith of the elders, perhaps of the the sick believer uh, as well. And the role of faith is important in this. Back in chapter 1, verse 6, believers are told, whatever he asks, he must believe and not doubt. That was a prayer for wisdom. Now it's a prayer for relief, perhaps for healing. Faith is important. Not that our faith earns healing. Always remember that. It's not that the Lord looks at a believer and says, well, he believes strongly enough, she believes strongly enough, I have to heal them. We don't compel God to heal. We don't twist God's arm by praying. Do you ever find yourself perhaps again slipping into thinking if I pray enough and I pray really hard, God will heal. As if you work yourself up to a kind of climax of praying and God will have to respond. God isn't the errand boy. God's arm isn't twisted by our praying, however vehement and however urgent it may be. We pray in faith. And if it is the Lord's will, he will raise up the sick person. In the end, of course, all healing, by prayer, by medicine, whatever, comes 
from God. And it isn't, of course, a guarantee that God will heal in every case. We are never promised that in Scripture. It ultimately depends on God's will. He may heal, he may not. Isn't it interesting, according to 2 Timothy 4.20, Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus. Why didn't Paul the Apostle with all the, the, the gifts that he had, why didn't Paul lay his hands on Trophimus and he was healed? And the answer is it wasn't God's will. And no Paul, no any other person could heal where it wasn't God's will to heal. Or you think of Paul's thorn in the flesh, if it was an illness, it probably was. And he prayed three times that God would take it away and God didn't. What God did was give grace to bear the thorn. And sometimes the result of the prayer of the elders for the sick person may be grace for the sick person to bear their illness, their debility, whatever it may be. It may be. And God's always sovereign. God can't be compelled. God's arm can't be twisted. But we're to pray submissively and seek the Lord's grace and the Lord's help, calling the elders. Their ministry is prayer and to bring an awareness of God into that time of sickness. Calling the elders. And then finally, the end of our portion, confronting sin. Confronting sin. Again, verse 15. If he has sinned, this is a sick person, he will be forgiven. And of course, the reaction of some is how primitive. The idea that somebody could be, be sick because they'd sinned, how dreadful to say that to anybody. And that may well be the reaction of many. And yet the Bible does indicate that there are occasions when sin and sickness are linked. You hear Jesus' words in John five fourteen to the man at the pool, the paralyzed man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. That's the Lord Jesus very directly connecting the man's condition with sin. Those who abused the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, there were some who who died because of abuse of the sacrament. Very striking. And yet, on the other hand, we have to put alongside that John 9, where the disciples ask about the blind man. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus' answer is, none of them. Nobody sinned. There's no sin involved in the man's condition at all. So the Bible is not saying if you're sick, it's because you've sinned. But the Bible is also not saying if you're sick, you've never sinned. There may be a connection. and We've got to ask again about God's involvement. It's not hard for us to recognize that a sinful lifestyle can bring illness. If you abuse your body, if you don't look after it, if you put all sorts of harmful things into it, don't be surprised if you're ill. 
and anxiety and bitterness and all sorts of issues, again, can affect a person's health. That's more and more recognized. And yes, it is possible sometimes that God can use a time of illness to awaken someone to a sin that needs to be forgiven. The Lord may work in that way. And a time of illness, of course, can be a time of taking stock. The old phrase uh, sometimes used of being laid aside, usually in a bed of weakness, which is probably a dangerous place to put a sick person on a weak bed, but laid aside. The idea of time to, to think, to take stock. Sometimes God does that. And it may be that you become aware of sin that needs to be confessed as you examine your life prayerfully. Again, what we mustn't fall into is an obsessive search to find some sin that explains why I'm sick. Because again, some Christians do go through those foolish experiences and take burdens on themselves that God doesn't put on them. And they think, well, I'm sick, so I must have sinned. And then they drive themselves astray, trying to find the sin that isn't there, that is foolish, and that does them damage. But it is a question that we should ask. Is God saying something to me? Maybe pastorally, elders may help in that examination of yourself. And if we find a sin, well, the remedy is always there. Confess it. Have it forgiven. Have it dealt with. There's healing for the soul always available. Sometimes healing for the body isn't available, but healing for the soul always is. The Lord forgives the repentant. You see, in all of what James is saying, and at first maybe, It appears there's a random collection of ideas here, but it's not random. They all come back to the same point. We're to keep God in mind in all the experiences of life. And it is always appropriate to be praying. That's the lesson in prayer of these verses. Never forget God. Never forget that he's involved in your troubles, in your joys, in your sicknesses, in everything. Never forget the Lord. Fix your mind on him in every experience. Whether you're rejoicing, whether you're burdened. And the Lord will always give the grace. Grace to bear a burden. Grace to rejoice. Grace to endure sickness, perhaps. Grace to heal and all to his glory.